Hey there, you're listening to Making Spaces, the podcast about community, culture, and making new connections, hosted by my good Judy, my friend and yours, Sarah Heath. On this podcast, we're having conversations about design, literally making spaces, and how some of the most inclusive spaces aren't always the most inviting. And we're talking about what it means to make space for one another. With the world the way it is right now, we need to find ways to have conversations across lines of radical difference. So join Sarah each week as she tackles the intersection of design and practical spirituality with conversations with some of the most fabulous guests you're ever going to meet. Some will talk about actual design. Some of us will talk about relational design. But no matter what, it's an incredible time. So grab yourself a cup of whatever you like, and welcome to Making Spaces with Sarah Heath. And it's not the fullness of my identity is what I try and say. You know, yes, it is a huge part of who I am. You know, I wake up every morning, and I I go to bed every night, and the first thing I do, and the last thing I do is take medication to care for myself. But that doesn't mean that the rest of the day has to be the fullness of my bipolar disorder. In fact, I would rather it be quite the opposite. You know, I think there's interesting points where we have to realize that the, the... the ends of these things, the, 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 the bookends of my, my day are about caring for myself and the rest can be for me, if I do that correctly, caring for the world and caring for others in ways that matter. Hi friends, a lot of us can relate to a heightened feeling of stress and general anxiety during this COVID-19 crisis. But for those who already experience mental health issues, this time may have only exasperated the symptoms. We know that as a culture, we have a lot to learn about making space for people experiencing mental health difficulties. And I'm hoping this episode with my good friend, Reverend Robert W. Lee, will inspire great conversation and thought around how do we make space for ourselves and others during this difficult time? Rob is a pastor in North Carolina at Uniform Church. It's incredible. I've been there. He also has written extensively for both secular and religious news outlets. He's done stuff with NPR's Weekend Edition, Ministry Matters. He's done the Huffington Post, Coming Oaks Bible, Washington Post. But you may know him for his name. It's true. He is generations removed as the nephew of General Robert E. Lee. But he's used that name as a platform to be an activist in the field of racial reconciliation. He is known for participating in the 2017 MTV Video Music Awards and on ABC's The View where he spoke to about how can we confront white supremacy and white privilege. He's also written two books. The first one I was featured in called Stained Glass Millennials. And the second book was called A Sin by Any Other Name. He's got a third book coming out soon and I can't wait. Rob does all of this while making space for his own mental health. You see, he's someone who was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Rob is incredibly inspirational as a friend, and as a speaker, and as a pastor. So stick around and hear his incredible takeaways and also wait for the weekly inspirational quote. Let's hop into the conversation. What I always do is I ask people where are their favorite space is. So it can be any space. It can be um, like somewhere in your home. It could be internationally. Just like however you think of space, where is your favorite space? Or, and this is the other thing, Rob, I've had to do this with a lot of people. Or like one of your favorites, because people have a tough time with the word favorite. I know I do. Um, so one of your favorites, and and then why? Well, I've been thinking about this since I've been listening to your podcast, um, hoping that I would be on the show. Um, <laughs> and, I've, and it's actually got me thinking, and, and I, I am going to throw a curveball, and I'm actually going to say time is my favorite space. 
Of course you would. Okay, give like, me more information. Like kind of meta and everything, but hold, just let me let me get to it. I think, like the idea that there are certain spaces in time that are really really special to me. Whether that was my wedding, my graduation, um, you know, time in Paris. You know, those are all spaces, but they're they're held in time. Mm. And so um, I think time has a lot of value. I'm glad to be in time uh, right now. I'm not always on time, um, <laughs> as you can tell. But um, I, I think being in time is very important um, for all of us. Um, how do we be in time to say the right thing? How do we be in time to be present? Um, that matters. And so that's a space for me. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Uh, how are we present? I think that's the thing. Um, Rob and I were talking earlier that everything in the world is currently affected by the pandemic. And I do mean everything and everyone. Um, and so because of that, we're having to like learn new patterns and rhythms. And one of the things that a lot of folks are talking about is learning to like just be present in the actual moment and not look back at how things were with longing nor forward with um, any sort of anxiety. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's just one of those things that right now we're all kind of in this holding pattern in time. Um, and that's why I'm grateful you're on the West Coast. Um, so I can text you when I'm awake late at night worrying and, you know, mm-hmm. you're still up. That's one of the great gifts of our friendship, I think. But also knowing that we're all in this together. You know, there's no escaping this right now. You can't turn on a different television channel. You can't look at a different social media feed. Um, and there's uh, there's actually some great comfort in that for me, as anxious as I am, is knowing that we're all kind of facing this as a community. Mm-hmm. As, as people in a space that is so important um, that we be together and not try to divide each other. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, that uh, That's just like one of those things. It's like being anxious about something happening within your sphere is one thing because you feel isolating. Um, you know, and then when it's not just people around you, but it's people around the country, the world, it it has a different sense of togetherness. Right, right. And I mean, I'm an anxious person in general. Um, I deal with that a lot, but I know that, you know, there's a little bit of hope and courage in knowing that the people I love the most are also feeling that same anxiety. Um, And I know that sounds, I'm not wishing that on them. It's just great comfort to know that they're feeling it too at this point in my life. Right, because then it's not, you don't feel isolated. One of the things that you have done so much stuff in so many different spaces and creating space for other people, whether it's talking about racial reconciliation, whether it's talking about LGBTQIA space, but you've also done a lot to talk about mental health and um, helping people make room for um, folks with mental health. And so I think just even the moment that you say, uh, you know, that, I, you know, I struggle with mental health and allow other people to sort of hear that from someone that they may respect. Um, it has a different sort of connotation or way of making space for people. So um, you saying this makes me anxious, someone who's a pastor, someone who's well known in the public sphere allows other people to say, okay, well, I'm anxious too. Right. I think part of creating space for people and um, being present with people is allowing them to know that you've been at least adjacent to that. Maybe I don't want to ever say, you know, I know what you're going through or I know what's going on in your life, but Mm -hmm. I do want to say that I know something of it. I'm kind of there with you sometimes. 
Um, I had an experience. I was at a mental facility at a psychiatric ward being cared for while I was in seminary. And um, mm. I actually had, uh, it was Duke, of course, had a, had chaplain interns uh, doing work um, at the hospital that I was at. And so I remember the face of my classmate when they walked into my room, not realizing that I was the Rob Lee of Duke Seminary. Oh, class. Yeah. yeah. And it was a really weird experience, but it was also really empowering for both of us to know that, you know, we're both trying to care for ourselves and each other and we're both trying to be there and i remember when i had gotten out of the hospital i came back and i saw her and she almost like darted her glance because she didn't want people to know that you know we had that experience of seeing each other uh, at duke hospital um but I, I thanked her i just said you know you you treated me with great care and professionally as a pastor and chaplain would um and, and that's what matters to me is that not that we're honest i want us to be honest what matters is that we treat each other with dignity and respect Mm, yes, yes. I think that's the actually hearing someone, actually seeing someone. Um, I had an experience when I <laughs> I had grown up with sort of a, a oh, my computer just made a weird noise. Um, I had grown up sort of with um, fear in my own self of like, do I feel okay about, you know, mental health care and that kind of stuff. I grew up in a culture where you don't, talk about your mental health necessarily you joke about it but you don't ever talk about it as a Canadian you know we just make jokes through a lot of pain sometimes um and just feeling like oh gosh I don't know how I feel about even care giving for my own health care but what you don't realize is it makes you have very little empathy for other people and then college had some really difficult experiences that required um, me ending up having to get some mental help and it was I think that was a good experience for me as someone who would later go into ministry to to realize that it really is an equal playing field, um, that it's not weak in any way, shape or form to, you know, talk about your mental health. Um, and so I was in a grocery store years later, I'd started seeing an, another therapist after going through a rather traumatic time and um, saw the. Actually, it wasn't a grocery store. It was a wine shop. It was a really nice wine shop. And I was with my girlfriends and I ran into um, the person that was my therapist at the time. And uh, she was, her face was very much like allowing me to decide how we were going to negotiate those moments. And um, it was really fun to just be like, hi, it's so good to see you. And then later she was like, I'm, you know, I, I never would approach you. You can only approach me. And, um, for me to be able to say, no, I didn't mind at all. Like I'm okay with people knowing I know you cause you're my therapist. Um, but they're professional, uh, you know, they're, they have, you have to decide how you want them to interact with you. So it was a really funny experience. Well, and I think that's so important too. One of the things you touched on that I think like my clergy friends and you know everybody else has to remember is that we do have professionals that do this so i'm very careful when i talk about mental health if you see me on twitter or on facebook or any or any other place i'm talking about this i try not to be prescriptive and tell people you know this is mm -hmm. what works for me this is the goal the magic bullet um that that fixes everything because i actually don't think that's helpful I think what's helpful for people like me and you and other people who are kind of on the, the peripheries of these realities, um, whether you know we're working with people who may experience mental health uh, uh, realities, um, we all do, but people who have it more pronounced. Um, I, I think what, what is helpful for us is to suggest 
you know, just making as you as your podcast is about making space um, for people to be themselves, and then being able to offer them resources and places that they can come um, and, and get professional help. Because I think so many times, um, you know, clergy are the worst at this. So I, you know, I have colleagues that try to be therapists and psychiatrists and um, you know medical professionals and all of the above, and that's just not healthy. What we need is people who are willing to just sit with people. Yeah, make space, literally just make space. I think that's always the most shocking thing for those of us who um, have done ministry when, you know, when I've done some of those mental health visits, uh, I have visited uh, psychiatric wards where people that um, were in my community were staying. And I think I, I remember very clearly one of the first times I was going into one and I was just like, well, I don't want to make things worse. And I was like, what do I say? What's the right thing to say? And then I kind of remembered all of my training was it's not about the right thing to say, but it's about making space and being present um, for someone and realizing like even in the state that this first patient was in, they wouldn't have necessarily remembered the right words anyway. It was more about me just being there. Right. Um, I think a lot of it's showing up, you know? Yeah. And I think the showing up part for me has been, you know, the first time I was in a psychiatric ward, I remember my associate pastor coming to visit me. Um, and that was one of the greatest gifts. Um, just, yeah. he, he didn't even say anything. He just gave me a hug and said, you know, let's talk. And I, you know, basically told him everything, you know, that was going on in my life. And my parents were there and it was just a meaningful, I'm very blessed to have a great support system. But I think one of the other things that I've learned in my times, not only in psych wards, um, but also just in general, especially now during this pandemic um, that, that seems to be gripping our world for God knows how long, is that we need to embrace um, the beauty of fresh air. Um, mm. the, the two times that I've been in, the, in a psych ward for an extended stay, um, there was one time I couldn't go out because the hospital was on lockdown. And so um, for six days, I was in uh, a room area where we could watch TV. We could see the outside world playing out, but we could not go outside ourselves. Oh, my goodness. And that was one of the most heartbreaking things for me. But the second I walked outside and I heard birds chirping and um, I could breathe in that fresh air, I I don't think I'll ever take fresh air for granted again. Um, Yeah. And I think that's a lesson to be learned in all this is that there are people that you know this was two years ago when i was in in the in 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 the facility and there are people that are probably still there that were my um, colleagues in in the facility i mean they were patients that just don't get out they don't get the same support and systematic um, ability to get help that i was able to get because of my privilege and i'm acutely aware of that but i'm also aware that when you walk out and you get fresh air for the first time there is nothing like that oh my gosh yeah actually i realize I have been injured during this uh, during this pandemic. I um, got plantar fasciitis running and w- I haven't been able to run. And I realize that for me, running really is my outside, definite outside time daily. And so I've been walking my dog on longer walks and there is something about experiencing the space that is outside and getting to engage with you know the sights and smells and just being outside is just such a gift and i know for lots of folks that's not a gift that they get to use a lot of people who are 
um, unable to, you know, either they're elderly and can't get out or whatever it might be. And I think it's it um, not necessarily you don't have to feel a guilt when you're doing it, but to be uh, aware or grateful is so key. I think it's good for your mental health and good just being a kind of a a way of sort of centering yourself and grounding yourself in the present is like, I am grateful for the fact that I can do this and I can walk outside. I think that was one of my biggest fears, honestly, when they were telling us what our, um, what it was going to look like for us to be, you know, sheltering at home. I thought, well, does that mean I can't go outside and walk my dog? Like I, there were so many questions that I had. Right. And I think what's so, um, you know, what's given me comfort, um, has been, the the vast experience of human history behind us mm-hmm. um not only in mental health but in general you know i was recording um an interview with a rabbi the other day um for my podcast and um he was talking about how the passover was the first shel- the first passover in egypt was the first shelter in place mm. um because they had dealt with the plague and the rest of human history has been us dealing with stuff. And we kind of riffed off that for a little bit. But the thing I, I, I took away from it all, in all of our experiences, is that we have seen this before. We have seen experiences, whether that's, um, you know, pandemic or plague or, um, or mental illness. People have gone through this. Like my uncle, uh, my uncle John um, was bipolar. He unfortunately completed suicide. But, uh, you know, there's a certain consolation in knowing that he went through this before me. Um, mm. I intend to be quite different than him in terms of the uh, ending of this uh, story. But I do know that his story is bound up in mine and mine in his. And I think that's really about what we're all about is is how our stories align and diverge with one another. When you were, you were you first diagnosed with bipolar in college or grad school? So it's kind of interesting when, when you have um, bipolar, um, a lot of times you're diagnosed first with depression um, mm. and then they start to treat you for depression and that reveals you have bipolar. So I was actually first diagnosed with a generalized depression. It, I was a junior in high school. And then by the time I got to a sophomore in college at Appalachian State, it was clear that that was not the diagnosis. And so they um, they actually came back and said, hey, we've done some tests. We've re- recognized now that you probably have bipolar disorder, and this is the type of bipolar disorder you have. And, and one of the great gifts of that, I remember writing home that day um, with my dad. And, you know, it was just, it was a relief. It had a name. The disease had a name. The illness had a name. It had something that I could fight because for the past few years, I had just been saying, well, I'm depressed, you know, I'm, I'm, and that's a valid concern, but it, it wasn't the name that it needed um, mm. to receive the full treatment it could have. And so um, after it had a name, it was like, you know what, this sucks, but I can fight it. And I know what it is. I know what it what it's called. Um, it's like... Um, you know, I, I shudder to think of anybody comparing it to demon, uh, demonic possession. But I, I think of that, uh, the demoniac in, in the Gospels, where it's like, what is your name? And once it has a name, once Jesus had a name for it, there was power over it. And yeah. I kind of feel the same way for me, too, is once I have a name for it, it's bipolar. Yes, it's going to be really sucky, and I, I can't handle that sometimes, and I need help. But at least I know what it is, and at least it's defined. Um, so that's really helpful for me. Yeah, and then you can almost separate it from this is not, this is not Rob. Right, right. And this is this when I'm acting or feeling this way, um, and I do a 
like check and make sure that it's not anything going on, you know, um, around me, then I can say, huh, this must be bipolar. And when you have that, instead of like, this is how I am, um, there is just this, I don't know if I call it nice, but there's this separation that gives you power to react. Right, right, mm-hmm. right. And it's not the fullness of my identity is what I try and say. You know, yes, it is It is a huge part of who I am. It is, um, you know, I wake up every morning and I, I go to bed every night. And the first thing I do and the last thing I do is take medication to care for myself. But that doesn't mean that the rest of the day has to be the fullness of my bipolar disorder. In fact, I would rather it be quite the opposite. Um, yeah. You know, I think there's interesting points where we have to realize that the 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 ends of these things, the the the, the bookends of my my day, are, are about caring for myself, and the rest can be for me if I do that correctly, caring for the world and caring for others in ways that matter. Oh, I love that. You're kind of making space for other people. How have you found your own diagnosis um, to be? Because I find you very very compassionate and filled with empathy and um your it's so fun that i i read your second second book i read both of your books actually um i read your second book uh after having been uh fairly good friends with you for a little while and so it was interesting to read a book and be like oh this is just a good book um but <laughs> in it uh sin by any other name i i recognize in it that there is this just amazing empathy that you have for people, whether it is, like I said, racial reconciliation or those who are experiencing um, being people being biased against LGBTQIA, do you think some of that has to do because of your own experiences with mental illness? Oh, absolutely. I think some, some people who are experiencing mental illness are some of the most empathetic people because we've often been in places of marginalization. You know, it's you know, one of the things I shudder again about is 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 when you know there's a mass shooting and they automatically go to mental health concerns, which are mm. obviously there in that person. Um, but the vast, it's actually disproportionately that people with mental health concerns will experience violence perpetrated against them rather than the other way around. And yeah. so th- we, we f- I think there's this, this feeling button that some of us have, a lot of us have, that um, is just turned up to the nth degree. And so I'm feeling, you know, when you text me and tell me something's going on in your life, I'm feeling that. And that's not a bad thing. I don't mind it. But I think some people don't always realize that. And so they're just, you know, saying things at it, you know, or they're saying things that are um, could cause anxiety or depression or, or mania even. You know, we got to get this done. Got to get this done. Um, you know, so I've had to do what Stephanie, my wife, has been very good about reminding me to do is to create my own rhythm. Um of empathy, of respect for my own boundaries, and mm. um, critical assessment of what matters in this moment. Because if I'm not assessing what's going on, I could very easily go down a rabbit hole and suddenly be in California to help you with your situation, even if <laughs> I'm not in California. You know, like there's the, and that's not a bad thing. It's it's a good thing. But the the, the trick is to know when to have that and to when to be a little less um, less empathetic. So yeah. if that's possible. Yeah, I think that's a personality trait that you and I share, uh, which is fun to have a friend who actually gets my like over desire to want to like care for other people. And so, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll text you and um, 
then I'll text again. Are, are you sure you're okay? And it's right. the funniest thing. And you're the same way. You'll be like, well, I'll feel are like we I okay? Made you mad or something. Yeah, which is my <laughs> Hallmark uh, text. Are you mad at me? <laughs> so. Which is hysterical, guys, because I don't get mad at anyone. Like, I'm right. never mad. <laughs> there's right. like a very, there's like a, if anything, I need to learn how to be mad. Not at you, but uh, right, I'm right. just not. Well, I, I'm not. I'm afraid of that day, so let's avoid it. So. Yeah, it will never come. Yes. Uh, I don't have that ability, but I think part of it is recognizing, too, that um, when you learn how to make space for people, when people are able to reveal the thing about them, and very early on in our friendship, you said part of my um, way that I see the world is I often think I've I've harmed a friendship and I'm concerned about it. And so I'm going to ask you, even if you feel like it's annoying, I'm going to ask you, are we okay? And um, what that helped me understand is like in my texts with you, when I might, or whatever it might be, when you might be shorter with people, just not, not because you're mad, just because you're like, oh, like my dad does K instead of okay all the time, right? <laughs> but to understand like, oh, that might be read differently by someone who already has that fear that they are too much because you know, when you have had a diagnosis of something or you're already feeling like I'm a lot for people. And so I think it's a, a gift that we can give people when we say, hey, here are the things that you can do to care for me. Right. And I think the other thing that's important about that is to know the signs of your friendships with people is to know what matters and what doesn't. Like over the course of getting to know you as my friend and you as mine, you know, mine as you and whatever. Um, I think what's been so great is that we've learned a little bit about each other uh, over the course of that and when to, you know, press on the gas and say, okay, what's up? Or when to, to kind of just not, not push on the gas, you know, maybe pump the brakes a little bit and say, hey, um, I'm just going to be here. If you need me, that's great. Um, but that takes time and that takes development of, of spaces, of friendships, of, uh, of, of beauty and, and kindness towards each other. But uh, I think it's one of the beautiful things that we all have the potential to do is to be honest with each other. Um, and that's, you know, people are always so surprised when I'm telling them about my bipolar disorder in a way that's just like, hey, I have this. I just need you to know. But it's <laughs> like, for me, it's it, it makes sense. Like, I, I, it's a part of me, though it's not the fullness. It is a part of me that I need to at least just be honest about at this juncture. And so for, for so many people, we're sitting here pretending that we don't have something wrong. Uh, you know, if, if I had a really bad heart condition that required constant care, um, and people needed to know about it. We wouldn't be ashamed to tell them about it. Just say, hey, this is what's up. If this happens, this is what you need to do. I, I wish and, and I hope for the day that we can do the same with mental health. Um, because the second we do, I think we'll have a lot less problems with people um, seeking help and people will be honest about their need to seek help. Um, it's a great gift. We're going to take a brief break from this conversation to listen to some messages from our sponsors that make this podcast possible. Hey friends, are you registered to vote? Headcount is a nonpartisan organization that works with the music and entertainment industry to get fans to vote. To update or check your voter registration status, go to headcount.org where you'll find all the information you need to be ready for election day. I mean, you got to check if you're voted registered to vote at your current address because I mean, more than 60% of eligible voters have never been asked to register. Um, and headcount.org is working to change that. I checked mine recently, and guess what? It was not correct, so I needed to change it, and now it is correct. 
But sometimes these mistakes happen where you need to really check it out because it could mess up your voting. And Lord knows this election is very important. Um, Headcount is a nonpartisan nonprofit that tours with musicians to help concert attendees register to vote. Sick. But you don't need to leave your house to register or get voting info. Just head to headcount.org. Headcount. Head to headcount. Head to headcount. Registered vote at headcount.org. I recently had uh, someone very close to me share that they had had suicidal ideations and um, weren't in that moment in a suicidal ideation, but had so much shame around it or fear of what it would uh, do for his relationships with other people. And also just kind of had that, like, I can take care of myself sort of mentality. Mm. And for me to say, hey, like, totally get it. There is a weird stigma around this stuff. But what I need you to do is tell the two people closest to your brother and your best friend. And you just need to tell them. And I think what will happen for you is when you tell them, their reaction is actually going to help in it. Because their reaction is going to um, be that they take you seriously and they don't see you any different. Well, it moves from confusion to understanding. Like mm-hmm. how we how we talk about these things and how we understand these things. If I didn't tell you that I had this, you know, this illness and that, um, you know, I just constantly checked in. Are you mad? Are you mad? Are you mad? It might not make sense. Um, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of friends, uh, you know, who know this about me know that. But now that they know it, they they know it. And it's not, you know, it's it's from confusion as to why the heck would he ask something like that when I'm clearly not mad to mm-hmm. understanding of, gosh, I, I, I can kind of see why he might be asking that or he might be having something going on that I need to check in. Um, that's really the gift in, in, in moving from those spaces of utter confusion, uh, of just being so lost and so alone to a place of understanding with your support systems that allow you to get help and, and whatever help looks like um, for you is valuable. Um, we all could use help, and I don't think there's any shame, or there shouldn't be any shame in asking for help. And we who are uh, people who stand in solidarity with others who have illness need to be sure that we make space for them to be honest with us. And I think it's a, an interesting thing as well. I mean, I knew the two people that he was going to share this with, and I knew that would be their reaction. But in other times I've said, now, they might react poorly at first, but that's because right. this is the first time they're getting this information. Um, well, and, and there's there's yeah. not a lot of understanding, you know, for some oh. communities and for some people. And um, for instance, you know, um, I, one of the, the people that I was most scared to tell about um, when I got out of the doctor's office with my bipolar diagnosis was actually my dad, not because he's not an understanding person or not because he, um, you know, wouldn't care or wouldn't do anything. It was actually quite the opposite. But because mm-hmm. in my own mind, I had confounded that his brother had died because of that. And that was going to create fear in him, and I didn't want to burden him with that kind of reality. Mm. Um, so w- some of those fears that we have about people um, not understanding are completely unfounded. Now, granted, some of them are uh, founded, and we need to be careful with how we tell our story, and we need to make sure it's our story. Um, our story matters, and, and we have to tell it in a way that we're comfortable with, um, because the second we don't is the second we become disingenuous. Yeah, or, you know, there is a 
There's a difficult thing and a balance that is really hard and people ask me a lot about as someone who's a public speaker is uh, how much of your story do you tell and when? Um, so for instance, uh, I got diagnosed with ADHD last year, year before. Um, and what I realized is that for myself, there was a lot of shame and a lot of like, oh, I don't know about this. But I was able to handle it in a different way than previously. Uh, I had been diagnosed when I was in college with OCD, which was something um, I don't have. Com- you know, all I knew was sort of the stereotypical um, people who are kind of crazy about washing their hands or don't touch doorknobs or all these sort of things. And those weren't necessarily my um those weren't my things. I have ruminating thoughts that I can't get out of my head. Um, and mine is on a very mild, whatever it might be, but oftentimes ADHD and OCD are combined, but people think of ADHD people as messy people, whereas I'm the opposite. I'm, um, doing too much stuff at once, but it all has to be fairly organized or I get pretty panicky. It's probably the way I've learned to deal with having, um, ADHD, but they're often cross diagnosed. Anyway, all of that was a very um, interesting experience for me to say, would I ever tell people publicly that I have ADHD? And when people ask me the question as a public speaker, how much of yourself do you share? I always, I do exactly what you're talking about. I do a gut check of, is this to manipulate the conversation or is it because this is information that could empower other people to feel like they, you know, kind of the me too experience of, yeah, you know, I know what it's like to feel a little out of control of your own brain. Um, I know what it's like to have racing thoughts. I know what it's like to have depression because your brain is going constantly all the time. I know what it's like to worry that, you know, you're too much or too little or whatever it might be, but I never want to manipulate it or make it about me necessarily. I want to make it about, um, empowering others. And so I think you always have to think, have I, have I worked through it? Am I telling my story in a way that isn't, um, yeah, it's not like you're, this is the first time I'm sharing it and I'm sharing it in a way that um, could be damaging to me or others. Um, and the, the space that I feel like I understand from what you were saying earlier is part of that for you is saying, this is my story, but it might not be the story of your brother who has bipolar or your sister who has bipolar or you yourself. Mm because this is my experience of it. Um, and that's the same thing with me for ADHD and OCD. Cause I mean, we're still trying to figure out if that's what's going on in my brain. I've, I've started just saying I'm neuroatypical and everyone laughs at first, but I'm like, no, I actually am. <laughs> um, and it's been interesting because several of my friends around me have been diagnosed as on the spectrum. And these are wonderful and creative and amazing humans. And because they're already so valued in society for them to say, oh yeah. And also I, um, I'm on the spectrum. And it's so funny how people around them go, oh, that explains, you know. But I think we, we're just becoming one of the generations that can do that. And so we have to be careful with how we use our story, not in a shamed way, but in a kind of think through, what am I, what am I hoping will happen as I share this? And is this a safe space to share this part? One of the things that I think about most in those conversations is that um, solidarity does not mean uniformity. Um, we are not just because I have bipolar does not mean I'm my uncle. Um, and just because my uncle had bipolar does not mean he's me. And I think that while we value the solidarity and knowing that I had a relative who suffered from this, um, 
I'm not in uniform with him. And uh, that is one of, that is a gift and a curse and a, all of the above. Mm. It's just, it just is. It is a space that we inhabit, that we are together in this, but we are not all the same. Mm. Yeah, that's really true, right? We all have different iterations of whatever it might be. How do you figure out, um, just for people who are listening, who they themselves may not have um, any sort of, uh, whatever it might be, neuro, atypical behavior, or whatever it might be, how can they create spaces for folks who, um, to be able to share their story or to make room if you're a gathering? How do you make room for people who are, um, you know, experiencing uh, depression or whatever it might be? How do we right. create spaces? Because I say it's very difficult to create a safe space. I don't even actually think that's possible. We create brave spaces where people are able to say oops and ouch and um that comes i think from the work of hillary mcbride we make brave space but what are what are your thoughts around how how have you experienced spaces maybe they did it well or didn't do it well well i think a, a few things are important the first is that none of us are tokens in this um mm. just as you wouldn't you know trot out someone who is uh, a different sexual orientation and say look what we're doing as a church you don't do that with people who are neuro- neurodivergent or um, neuroatypical or suffering from any mental illness, you don't want to do that. Um, you know, this, the second thing I think of that is important in creating those spaces, whatever they might look like, is to let the person who is suffering or may be uh, considered mentally ill to lead in that. Mm. Um, you know, we need to empower people. Um, we don't need to say, well, here's the table. Why don't you take a seat? We just need to set the table. And once we've set the table, we have the ability for people to choose to sit down. And if they don't, that's okay. But I think in time, as long as the table is set, people will sit down. And I think that people desperately need community in these times. Um, Regardless of what's going on in our world, in our localized communities, mental health um, is not really well kept. Um, And we need to have people who are empowering others to get help empowering others to seek guidance um, from professionals. So that's another thing that I recommend is to have kind of a Rolodex if you're a, a, a curator of a space is to allow people to know that, hey, if you're going to admit something in here and you actually really do need help, we have the address for the local psychiatrist or therapist that we would like to connect you with. And we just give them a card. Um, that's something that I've seen that's been really, really helpful for a lot of people is knowing that you can admit this, but we also have resources for you to be involved with other people too. Um, so we're not just going to stop the conversation at you admitting that you have something going on. Yeah, I think there is, uh, when I first started at the church, uh, there was a, a need for me when we, when we were doing the revitalization of the community. Although I had lived in this community before, there was a real need for me to know like who are our caregivers, um, mental health caregivers, because we do have a lot of folks who, because of lots of circumstances, because we don't have great health care uh, and we don't have great mental care, um, there were a lot of folks who were experiencing homelessness and poverty and all kinds of things in our area that were coming into the church that had pretty severe mental illness. and. Um, I needed to know what are the resources we can provide people with. And then beyond that, as we were doing even Lenten practices or different practices where grief was coming up, it was like, who are the therapists that I can get to know? And one of the neatest things was a therapist uh, local to the area asked me out to coffee and just sat across from me and told me a little bit of his story and why he 
does therapy the way that he does it. He said, like, I would love to help your people knowing that we have uh, quite a few people in our community who are from the LGBTQIA community. And he was just like, I know it's difficult to know kind of who are safe people to send people to. Um, And so it was such a great conversation and it made me feel very confident. Like, okay, you're the kind of person who I can send folks to. And so I do have a, a Rolodex of who in this community are the people who can have those conversations. I think that's a great tip for people who are curating because you don't, you actually shouldn't be the one who is offering the advice or, <laughs> um, right, we're not, right. unless you are a mental health professional, but we are not mental health professionals. And we are, um, a lot of times pastors fill that role and that really bothers me. Oh, oh me too. I you know, can't stand it, but I just think that the necessity for us, those of us who know better is to do better. So, <laughs> We just got to be present and be able to provide resources and then follow up too. I mean, like, you know, we can't just leave someone, um, we have to giving them a business card or connecting them with resources. The trick is, is to make sure that, um, you're there for them every step of the way. Yeah, it is a follow up thing. And if people are going to realize that they can, they can come talk to you, you'll probably end up with more folks talking to you and it, it kind of becomes, um, yeah, there's a, a stream of the experience of people have a positive experience with you. And then they um, share that with other people. Like I, I shared this difficult thing in my life with this person and they were able to hold it in a way that made space for me and made me feel like um, I wasn't in such a bizarre situation. Cause I think that's the biggest fear for people is to be othered. Um, and I think that's something that we're always trying to avoid. Right. And I think the, the thing about being the other is it's not identifiable. Um, I, I can't identify with the other, but the second that someone knows, hey, I, I get it. I'm there too. I'm in the trenches with you. There's a sense of solidarity. Mm-hmm. And I love what you said, just because we are in solidarity doesn't mean that we are in the same or have the same or experiencing right. things in the same way. And um, I think that's an, another great tip for folks is like, don't say, well, I also have, or I knew someone who um, because sometimes that's the worst. It is the worst, right? Um, I, and it's just people trying to relate. And it's right. people and, trying. And, and it comes from a place of beauty and hope. Um, and also, again, trying to be solid. more Maybe more uniform. But it's just like, let me tell you why I think that i am got the same issues as you. And that's not what we need to hear. Is we just need to hear, yeah, that sucks. Or, <laughs> oh. yeah, let's, get, let's, let's walk this together. Or, yeah, um, I'm here. And, I'm not afraid um, of you. I think that was the right. fear. Of my I'm not going anywhere, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, that was the fear for my friend and sharing his own uh, darkness was that people were going to say, it's too much for me. And um, I think people who, like like me and your friend, we're, we're often surprised. Um, and, and just kind of giving you a writer's theater into what people are actually feeling in that moment is that, you know, if, we, if we're honest with someone, they're going to leave. And then when people say, actually, no, we're here for you and we're going to help, and you're not a burden to me, you're like, oh, wow, that's that's kind of crazy. Um, that's, <laughs> that, that, you know, yeah, that's, 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 that's ridiculous. Why would you stay for someone like me? And then they remind you um, that you were loved. They remind mm-hmm. you that you're worth it, and everyone is. And so there's, again, some beauty in that, too, in relearning the things that make us who we are are not evil things or not bad things or not demonic things, but they are in fact um, lovely things. If we're willing to take a curse and make it a blessing. Mm, I love that. 
Um, my friend just posted earlier today a list of things that we need to remember to do during the pandemic. And the first thing he said was, take your meds or encourage others to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the, when we normalize some of these things or um, there's just a, yeah, a nice sense of solidarity of like, all right, that's helpful for folks who, who need that. Like you said, it's your morning and evening ritual that lets you be present in the world and present for the world. It's become um, a liturgy, quite truly, yeah. to use churchy language. It's become an outwork and a rhythm um, that I crave desperately, not in a sense of being addicted to anything, but just crave that identity of knowing that I have something to do in the morning that needs to be done. I do something in the evening to end my day. And the rest is part of me being in the world as Rob, as the Rob that I've come to love um, and Mm. continue to love. Well, friend, I am so glad that I got to talk to you a little bit about this. Like I said, there are so many ways I could talk to you about making space, but it seemed to me like one of the things that people have a tough time talking about is mental health. And sometimes just knowing someone who um, is experiencing those things makes it a little bit easier and maybe someone who is listening will encounter someone who is bipolar and have a different understanding of what that looks like. And, you know, so often we hear that word thrown around, oh, they're bipolar. Um, But they don't understand quite exactly what that is. And so opening that door, I'm grateful for you for doing that for folks. Um, I have a a kind of a last question I like to ask everyone. If there is one tangible thing, just one, um, just a practical tangible thing people could do to make space for others, what do you think that would be? I think it would be um, to love fiercely, mm. um, especially in times when it's difficult. And I know that sounds like not, that sounds like in the ether, but what I mean like that is like write a note. Something as simple as what I've been doing lately is writing notes to people. You know, saying, mine's right here. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey I, I love you. You're not alone. Um, you are the person that I admire because. It's those tangible things of loving fiercely, like going out and buying stamps that you didn't even know they had stamps anymore (laughs) and and sending those letters. That's an act of love and that's an act of showing up and and showing that the community can still happen. Yeah, that's a, that's a great tangible thing. Do one thing that, that is a fierce act of love. And that might be sending a note with um, clear and specific reasons why you care about someone. It might be, um, choosing to sit with someone when they're telling a really difficult story. Uh, It might be checking in on that person that this episode made you think of, but choosing um, a fierce act of love. Rob, I am grateful for you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I think Rob's reminder that sometimes loving fiercely looks as simple as writing a note and being specific about what you value in others. I have to tell you, it's been a rough couple of weeks for me and getting Rob's letter was incredibly just inspirational and helpful. I also love his reminder that how we experience even the same diagnosis varies. So solidarity isn't about uniformity, but instead about willing to stand with someone in their own unique story, which is helpful because it means we don't have to have the right answers. This week's inspirational quote is from John O'Donohue. May there be kindness in your gaze when you look within. Friends, I hope that's the case. And during this time, take care of yourself. If you need to talk to someone, there are some links in this week's show notes. Making Spaces is edited by Stephen Burnett from The Cult Podcast. The introduction music is It Can Be Done by Ari via Epidemic Sound. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And leave us a review. It helps other listeners find us and let us know that we're on the right track.